0: and uh, we wish you a happy Mother's Day. I think all of us have uh, a variegated experience with our own mothers, and I'm assuming each one of you had a mother. I used, my sister used to tell me that they found me under a rock, <laughs> and uh, you know, they may have as I think about it, but uh, I had good memories of my mother especially how long-suffering she was. Uh, my family would always go camping high in the Colorado Rockies every, su- every summer, and I can remember as a very young boy that uh, my dad, everything we had was World War II Army surplus, and so he had a 12-man canvas Army surplus tent which had this real funky smell, you know? It probably helped us sleep, whatever that chemical was, but we would go up and we'd camp for a couple weeks, and I remember my mother just being so patient in the rain, trying to cook breakfast on the campfire and have wet sleeping bags and kids who were misbehaving. And, and I thought about that and thought about that we'd do that every summer, uh, tent camping like that. And finally, I remember about when I was eight years old, we upgraded to a modern tent. And boy, that was really something. And we would pack everything into the Plymouth station wagon, bedrolls and sleeping bags and air mattresses and all of our gear and head up into the mountains every summer like that. Uh, Well, Don and I don't adhere to the tent camping philosophy, and uh, as much my problem as it is hers, we just don't do that anymore, and so at at some point some years ago, we bought a travel trailer primarily to keep it our daughter's in Montana, so when we went over there, we had a place to stay, and uh, it worked out well for that, and I was thinking about the difference between the 12-man army tent and an RV And the RV, of course, you have a real bed, you have a kitchen. Uh, We even had a satellite dish. That's how much we roughed it in that thing. And my son-in-law reminded me what RV stands for. He says RV stands for ruined vacation. And (laughs) so we have divested of that, but uh, we have some great memories of that. But I was thinking about uh, taking everything we own along, because when we sold that RV, we unloaded it, and I was amazed how much stuff we had packed into it. You know, how much stuff we needed just to go camping. It would not fit in an old Plymouth station wagon, believe me, I know that. But I was thinking about that metaphor of uh, taking everything with us. And uh, the aspect with the Apostle Paul here in the book of Ephesians, this letter of Ephesians that we have been going through as a Sunday morning study, is the fact uh, that the adventure of the new life in Christ is when we really begin to leave the comfortable old patterns behind. You know, with an RV, we want to take all of our comfort with us, and that's great, and that's fine. But yet in the Christian life, there's an aspect where some things we need to be leaving behind. If you've not been with us in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is a, uh, just a great letter. It's probably the pinnacle of what it means to be the church in the 21st century. It is the, uh, the, the acme, if you will, or the summit uh, of the church, especially in chapter 4. But if you remember, Ephesians can be easily broken down into two major sections, chapters 1 through 3, is our wealth in Christ, our wealth that is given to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Remember, the letter is written to saints, those who have been set apart by the blood of Christ unto God. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are our walk. In other words, how we live out the wealth that we enjoy, that we possess, whether we realize it or not, Uh, Paul details it for us, but in 4, 5, and 6, he tells us, in light of this, this is how you're to live. Many of our versions today, instead of translating the Greek word, which is translated walk in a literal translation, they translate it life, lifestyle, or living, so you get the same idea. And so we come to that, and there's a number of times the Apostle Paul uses that metaphor of walking in life. And uh, we come to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called or live in a worthy manner manner. And then in verse 17 of chapter four, we're no longer to live like the pagans, no longer have a lifestyle that is a pagan lifestyle. And in the historical context of Ephesus, remember that was a pagan capital of pagan worship. The temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana was there and it was a pagan form of worship. It was in the crossroads of the Roman Empire there in Asia Minor. And so it was a very pagan setting uh, for these new Christians in Ephesus, in the church at Ephesus, to deal with. And many of them undoubtedly came out of that background, came out of a pagan, godless background, godless in the sense of the true God. In chapter 5, verse 1, we are to be imitators of God. In verse 2, it says we're to walk in love. So there's this idea of living in a Christ like, loving manner. Chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. In other words, uh, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. If we're believers in Jesus Christ as Christians, we have his light in us, if you will, and we are to walk as a child of light. And in verse 15, we are to walk wisely, walk carefully, this passage before us today. And he tells us there that we are to be careful in verse 15 of chapter 5, how you live, how you walk, to be careful. And everything we do requires care, doesn't it? When we are careless about something, uh, then it shows up in real life. And so the Apostle Paul is concerned that we walk carefully in life. We take trouble over the things that matter to us. We take trouble and we take care about our jobs, about our family, our education, our hobbies, our dress, our appearance. We are careful about that. We're careful about where we live and we take care of those things. And so the implication is, the direct implication is that as Christians, we should take greater care of our spiritual life. And this is the Apostle Paul is talking to us about it. It is a serious thing. One translation says, Be most careful then how you conduct yourselves like sensible men, not like simpletons. And the contrast, of course, is to walk wisely, not as a foolish person would walk, or an unwise one. And so, what are the marks? What are the marks of those who take trouble over being a, a Christ follower? What are those things? Well, living wisely requires choosing the right things. In verses 15 through 18, we see three contrasts. Three contrasts. The Apostle Paul is very good at doing contrastive statements, and he does this here three times. In verse 15, he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. He sets the stage for wisdom. He sets the stage that if we are Christ followers, we want to be wise in how we live out our lives, in light of the blessings that we have that he's detailed for us earlier on in this short letter. And so the three contrasts, we are to be wise, not unwise. The first one is the wise people. If you want to live wisely, you make the most of your time. Look at verse 16. It says, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. There's the contrast. Be wise, make the most of your time because the days we have are evil. The verb that is used there means to redeem or to buy back. It's the idea that uh, it's a ransom from time. It's ransoming time from evil bondage is one idea, but I think a better understanding, it means to buy up. Uh, The Revised Standard Version uses the translation, making the most of the time, referring to every passing opportunity. All of us have opportunities that come our way in life, and we need the wisdom to know which ones to capitalize on, if you will. Wise people know that time is a precious commodity. It is one of the things we spend that we never get back. Isn't that interesting that there is no amount of time you can redeem in that sense? All of us have the same amount of time at our disposal, 60 minutes in every hour, 24 hours in every day, and none of us can stretch time, and God has given us the perfect amount of time. Wise people use it to the fullest possible advantage. They know that time is passing. Uh, there's some aspect that, uh, is that my phone? Yeah. <laughs> I stand condemned. <laughs> By the way, it typically doesn't bother me. If your phone goes off, don't worry about it. But when mine goes off, that does distract me. Okay. <laughs> uh, where was I? <laughs> The whole issue of redeeming the time, buying it up, buying it back. In that sense, uh, even the wisest people in the world cannot recover time. There's a lot of things that perhaps we waste, but yet time wasted is uh, something a wise person does not do. Jonathan Edwards, some of you may know him, he was probably the greatest preacher In America, in the early part of America, 1734, 1735, when he was not even 20 years old, he wrote 70 of his famous resolutions. He wrote a list of resolutions about his life, and it's an interesting read when you think of his age. Uh, He was not even 20 when he wrote most of these, and uh, this one he wrote about time. He said, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. He was a wise man. He was following scripture here. The first sign of wisdom which Paul gives us is a disciplined use of time. A disciplined use of time. There's a measurement there of how we are spending our time. So a wise person in this first contrast makes the most of their time. Secondly, in verse 17, wise people understand God's will. Look at verse 17. So then do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And again, he's contrasting unwise living or foolish living, or as that one translation said, don't be a simpleton, Be a smart person, be a wise person. He says people understand God's will. As we said a couple of weeks ago, it seems like some people approach God's will as if it's some big mystery. But God's will is is, uh, revealed to us in Scripture. Now, there is uh, two ideas that theologians talk about when they talk about God's will. There is God's desired will and then God's determined will. For instance, God desires all men to come know, and women and children to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's a desired will. We also know elsewhere in Scripture that not all will. And so that's His desired will. But His determined will is like gravity. He has created the universe and it is determined. Fall off a ladder and you will see that He does not suspend the law of gravity. Okay, it is a d- determined thing. But the will of the Lord is that we would be saved. In other words, that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 through four says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men and women and children to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desired will. He also desires and his will is that we be spirit-filled, as we will see here in chapter 5, Verse 18 that we would be sanctified. And sanctified simply means to be set apart unto his use. Uh, it's, a, it's an idea that uh, we are used for a special thing that God wants us for. I remember in my grandmother's house in North Denver, she had a china cabinet in her dining room. And in that china cabinet were the dishes that were only used on special days. But in the kitchen were the everyday dishes. So those Special dishes were sanctified. They were set apart for a special use, and that's the idea behind sanctification. First Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification being set apart unto God's holiness, and it's part of salvation. Uh, fourthly, submissive is the will of God. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, for so is the will of God, First Peter chapter 3 suffering for his sake this is our least popular one isn't it suffering for his sake first peter three for it is better if the will of god be so that you suffer for doing suffer uh, for well-doing rather than for evil doing and then finally saying thanks and everything give thanks for this is the will of god in christ jesus concerning you first thessalonians five eighteen. And so God's will is contained in his word. His will is his desire and his determined will for us. So wise people understand God's will. Verse 18, wise people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is our hinge verse, our key verse in this passage today. Look at verse 18 with me. And so do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That is the final contrast in this part of this passage And wise people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's some confusion about filling of the Holy Spirit because we think of it sometimes as an empty cup that you fill up or a hand in a glove. And we think of that. But the contrast here is basically influence. Someone who is under the influence, under uh, chemical influence, uh, like in driving, is driving under the influence and uh, they are arrested for that. We say someone who is drunk is under the influence, and so this idea of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit in contrast to the world system. And here the filling is in the present passive imperative. Here's your grammar lessons for today. Present passive imperative. What does that mean? Present in the uh, present tense means keep on building being filled. It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing lifestyle where we submit to God's will in this, and it's a command, by the way, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It's an imperative command, uh, which means that it's uh, it's not negotiable. This is a command out of Scripture. And then a passive means that God is doing it. We don't do the filling. We don't somehow mechanically make this happen, but God does it, and we're not to be involved in wasteful living. Actually, this passage is, probably comes right out of Proverbs 23, verse 20, uh, where it's contrasted, drunkenness is contrasted with wasteful living, and it's contrasted with what it means to be wise. Remember, Proverbs is about not being foolish, but about being wise, and so we are to be involved in wise living, be filled by the spirit this is one of the four commands relating believers in Jesus Christ to the third person of the trinity the holy spirit first one is walk by the spirit galatians 5:16 this one here be filled by the spirit 5:18 is in ephesians 5:18 grieve not the holy spirit ephesians 4:30 and we think of the Holy Spirit, he's the third person of the Trinity, people grieve. Uh, the Spirit is not some ethereal kind of gas moving around, but it is God himself and the third person of the Trinity grieve, not the Spirit. And in First Thessalonians five nineteen, quench not the Spirit, which is related to uh, forbidding someone else in their ministry. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Some interpreters have equated this with the miraculous occurrences in the early church in the book of Acts. If you think of chapter 2, verse 4, it says they were filled with the Spirit, There were speaking in tongues, there were miraculous healings, there were miraculous things going on in the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is the first book of history of the church age, and it is a transitional book, transitioning from the Old Testament economy to the New Testament economy, economy, from the Gospels to uh, the church age. And so we see that there. And some people think and look at this verse and think it's equated with the events in the book of Acts. But what they're failing to recognize is that even though in the book of Acts people spoke in tongues, they had prophecies, tongues, by the way, is speaking a foreign language that you don't know, that you've never been trained in, and somebody else translates it who doesn't know the foreign language. That's a miraculous thing. If I suddenly started speaking Latvian to you, it would be a miraculous thing. And if you understood it or somebody didn't translate it, that would be miraculous. That's the idea behind tongues. But in the book of Acts, that was done as a testimony to the Jewish people about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who had, had come. And so there was that, there were prophecies, visions given, people were miraculously healed. Uh, But in this verse, the Greek word is different than the Greek word that's used in the book of Acts for filling. It's translated into English as filling, but it's two different Greek words and it has two different understandings. It's better to understand these things in the context. Here in this context, this is an ethical context it's directed, influenced, and ultimately gov- governed by the Holy Spirit is what he's calling upon us to do. Uh, and in fact, in the book of Acts, you don't see that other Greek word that's used of miraculous events after Acts chapter 19. It doesn't occur anymore. It's also in the aorist passive with a genitive all the time, and uh, which means it's a one-time event. It just occurred uh, that people were filled. They had no control over the fact that they were filled. It was a sovereign work of God. And here, it's in the imperative present, and so it's different. It's a different word. It's person-oriented here, whereas in the book of Acts, it was task-oriented. There is a different emphasis in that idea there. Uh, Also, let me just, one more thing. In Acts 13.52, in fact, this word that's used here in in Ephesians uh, 5.18 of being filled, that command, only has one other occurrence in the verb form. And it says in Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. It's that idea that God filled them with joy and the Holy Spirit filled them with joy. And so we have that. God's fullness in, uh, in Ephesians here, his moral attributes. Look back at chapter 3, verse 19. We see this building up through uh, the uh, book of Ephesians. And he's telling us to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then chapter four, verse 10, the agent of the filling is <clears throat> Christ is the agent. Chapter four, verse 10, where he says, uh, is he also who has ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And so here we are filled by Christ, by means of the Spirit, with the content of the fulfillment, the fullness of God himself. So we see the Trinity here, all three persons of the Trinity. And so the Holy Spirit's fullness is about influence. It's about the power that God gives us. And so when a Christian is spirit-filled, we say that he's under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit with the fullness of God himself. And uh, so that is what the fullness of the Holy Spirit is. So what does it look like? There are four results that we see in this book. How do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? And remember, it's an ongoing process, continue to be filled. And so how do you know that on a day-to-day basis? Well, he's not. Paul has not left us without an indicator of that. Uh, so in uh, verses 19 through 20 one, we see living wisely produces a harvest. There should be a product of being filled by the Holy Spirit, something that shows up in your life and in my life for results of the Holy Spirit's filling. First of all, in the first part of 19, we see that speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There is fellowship, speaking to each other, And some of the songs we sing are songs not directed at God, but to each other, reminding us of the greatness of God, the holiness of God. We speak to one another. We speak to one another in that. And so there is fellowship, conveying the commonality we have in Jesus Christ. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which means a commonality. We hold these things in common, in unity, in unison. And so there is fellowship in that. Psalms, as the, he uh, writes here, are actually the psalms we see in the Old Testament. They were originally set to music. People would sing them to one another. We, sing, we see a lot of that in uh, the psalms where they would be we, one would sing one verse and then people would respond to that psalm ninety five is a good example of that. Hymns are songs of praise to God. Spiritual songs is a general term, uh, but the idea is the fact that it 's the lyrics we sing to one another which convey what we believe about God. We've often said that your take-home theology is the theology of the music we sing. That's why music is so important. Uh, The words are important. You take those home with you, and that's what you remember. And so there is fellowship with one another, speaking to one another. The second part of verse 19 is the second result of spirit filling, where he says, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That is worship, that is speaking to Jesus Christ. That is what we call worship, expressing the glory of Christ. I was reading about a member of the British Parliament whose name was Neil, N-E-I-L, Neil Martin. He was a member of the British Parliament, and once he was giving a group of his constituents a tour of the Houses of Parliament. And during the course of the visit, as the tour group was going around that great building, uh, the group happened to meet Lord Hallestrom. He was the Lord Chancellor, and he was wearing all of his regalia of office, you know, all of the chains and the robes and everything. And uh, Lord hallstrom recognized Neil Martin among the group, and he cried out, Neil! And the whole group, not taking a chance, all knelt <laughs> on the floor. And the entire band fell to their knees. And, uh, you know, there's an aspect where, as funny as that is, uh, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, every knee will bow. We worship God. Probably the best definition of worship I have ever come across is done by William Temple. Uh, He was uh, Archbishop of Canterbury in Great Britain in 1942 through 1944. But he said this about worship. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. And all of this is gathered up in our effort of adoration. Adoration, that is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable of, when you think about it. And therefore, the chief remedy for our own self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin, is combated by adoration of God. Now, I want to remind you that you're not here as a passive observer of a show that goes on up here or listening to a sermon, but you are called to be worshipers. And that is an activity. Worship is a verb. It is not a passive activity. And it doesn't only happen here, but through your week, we are called to be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout your week, wherever you are, in my own life, I can remember sometimes worshiping really amazing things, uh, uh, Jesus Christ in amazing places, and just uh, he just overwhelmed me with his grace and his mercy. And so when we are filled with the spir- Spirit, we will worship and express the glory of Christ. Verse 20 is the fourth one. Not only do we fellowship, worship, the third one, I mean, uh, we are thankful. We have gratitude communicating that we are thankful in Christ. Here we are speaking to God. Look at verse 20 with me. In verse 20, it says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So we have been speaking to Jesus Christ. We are speaking to God the Father here, uh, speaking to him. The spirit-filled believer is full of thanksgiving, not grumbling. Uh, It's good to listen to your own thoughts, to listen to your conversations and how much is critical and grumbling Uh, because James 3 says the spirit-filled believer is full of thanksgiving, not grumbling. Warren Wiersbe has written that he has felt for a long time that one of the particular temptations of maturing Christians, in other words, if we've been believers for a long time, is the danger of getting accustomed to God's blessings. Like the world traveler who has been everywhere and seen everything, the maturing Christian is in danger of taking the blessings for granted and getting so accustomed to them that they fail to excite him them as they once did. Uh, the poet Emerson said that if the stars only came out once a year, everybody would stay up all night to behold them. But we have seen the stars so often that we don't bother to look at them anymore. We have grown accustomed to our blessings. And that's the human condition, really, when we don't look at them with fresh eyes, what God is doing. Think of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and God uh, gave them manna. He miraculously provided mi- heaven's food for them, and they got accustomed to that. In fact, they got so accustomed, they started complaining about manna, nothing but manna to eat. They were experiencing a miracle of God's provision every morning, and yet they were no longer excited about the blessings of God. May we never go there. The person who has gotten accustomed to his blessings can never be satisfied. And that is the difference between a thankful person and one who is constantly grumbling or critical. The fourth one is submission, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And this is really a reverence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, submission is a much maligned word, especially in our culture, in our day and age. Uh, but is living out the life of Christ. Remember, the son submitted to the father. The Lord Jesus Christ came to do the father's will. He submitted even to the cross of Calvary. If you were to go with me over to Columbia Falls, Montana, on the Flathead River, uh, kind of south of town, there's a one-lane bridge. We always called it the Old Red Bridge. It's closed now, but I remember as a teenager driving across the bridge, and you'd stop at one side. And it had a big yield sign, and you'd go across. But when you came back, there was a yield sign on the other way, too. And uh, basically, they were telling you to yield to one another because if you didn't, you could have a head-on collision right in the middle of the bridge. And so it was a reasonable and gracious way of preventing one of those head-on collisions. The Bible commands us as believers to be subject to one another, Ephesians 5.21. It is simply a reasonable... And gracious command to let the other one have the right-of-way and avoid interpersonal head-on collisions, which I think if you've been a Christian very long, we've seen a number of those. And so basically, it's interesting. We are a very diverse bunch. Christians are very diverse. You can go anywhere in the world, and there is a great diversity in those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are diverse in that. And I was reading an interesting article, oftentimes the church has been compared to a symphony orchestra. There's different uh, instruments, there's different things going on, but at a meeting of the American Psychological Association, a psychologist at Union College and a graduate student at Columbia University had done a study, and they presented their findings on how members of various sections of 11 major symphony orchestras perceived each other, in other words, what They thought of other parts of the orchestra they played in. Well, here were the findings. The percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. Sorry to our drummers out there, okay? String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical, interesting findings to say the least. What's more interesting about that, with such widely divergent personalities and perceptions, how could an orchestra ever come together and make such wonderful music? Of course, the key is simple the answer is simple. Regardless of how those musicians view each other, they subordinate their feelings and their biases to the leadership of the conductor. Under his guidance, they play beautiful music. And that's a picture of the church. In all of our foibles and missteps throughout the, throughout church history, our conductor is what holds us together and eventually makes the beauty of the music. Church has often been described as a mess, but also a magnificence the mess of our lives and yet the magnificence of God's presence and God's redeeming grace in our lives. And so we see that in that, that living wisely has product in that, that we will be uh, we will be fellowshipping with other believers. We will be thankful. Uh, We will have much grace in our lives in that. And so we will have gratitude and submission. And then finally, in verses 522 through 612. And verse 21 sets up that section. And we're going to spend some time in the following weeks to touch each section. But living wisely has practical applications, practical outworking applications. In chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, there's harmony in the marriage. He's going to illustrate for us what it means to submit one another in these following relationships. And all of us are involved in some of these things. He addresses wives in verse 22 and husbands in verse 25. And then harmony in the family in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, verse 1. Fathers in verse 4. Harmony at our workplace, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. He talks about slaves and masters. And maybe you work somewhere where you feel like a slave or a master. So he's got words for you there. And then finally in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, how to have hostility to the devil. And so he's going to illustrate for us what that last uh, result of being filled by the Holy Spirit, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so believers are to live in a careful, wise manner. Understanding the will of the Lord, stimulated by the Holy Spirit, result in a changing lifestyle that you're, you're no longer who you used to be. So here is the message. The message of this passage is really for... The person who feels defeated in the Christian life, as well as one who may be complacent in the Christian life. These are Christians at opposite ends of the spectrum, perhaps. To be defeated, Paul would say, be filled with the Spirit, and he will give you new love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. To the complacent, Paul would say, go on, keep on being filled by the Spirit. Thank God for what he has given you thus far, but you But do not say that you've arrived, for there is much more that is yet to come. As the men come up, uh, as we participate in the Lord's table this morning, uh, we will observe what the Lord has commanded us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a central passage for communion or the Lord's table that was given to us. And I was thinking about uh, Mother's Day, and I was reading an article about one mother and thinking about her story. And just let me uh, read that for you here. It was written by Steve Mathewson, whom I've known. His first church he pastored was in Helena, Montana, some years ago now. He said he'd often spend some time of his week studying at the public library there in Helena. I always saw a group of four or five scruffy-looking guys wearing dirty coats and long beards, and they looked like mountain men. He writes, because probably they were. They came down from the hills to study who knows what. I would see these guys with stacks of books sitting in the cubicles of the library. I didn't think a lot of it at the time, but four years after I left, I found out that one of those guys was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, you may remember him. If you know nothing about Kaczynski's story, you will know that he grew up a very gifted young man. He became a math professor, but was soon disillusioned and moved to the mountains of Montana. He would sometimes come down out of the mountains to send mail bombs to people he didn't like. After years of investigation, it was finally discovered he was finally discovered by law enforcement and arrested, and he's in prison to this day. At this point, the story gets even more interesting. Uh, Steve Mathewson writes that a while ago, his mother, Wanda Kaczynski, was interviewed by a reporter for the Chicago Trib. She made some statements that I thought were powerful. At the time the article was written, she'd been writing monthly letters to her son in prison. She shared with the reporter that she had written in her most recent letter, what she had written in her most recent letter. She wrote, I want you to know, Ted, this is quoting her letter, that when a child is born, the parents give them the gift of unconditional love for a lifetime. This is true of you. No matter what happens, my love for you will be there for a lifetime. Love, Mother. Love, Mother. Even after he refused to look at her when he entered the courtroom during his trial, even after he had given testimony in court and described her as a horrible person, she still loved him enough to write those monthly letters. And we look at that we wonder, how can that even be? How can that even be that someone would do that? But yet the rather amazing fact of human love is there. But yet in Romans 5, it tells us God has some, done something far more incredible than that. While we were still sinners, while we were still out, all out, rebellion against him, he sent his son to die for us. 1 John 4.10 says this, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Praise God for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, the Apostle Paul is given the instructions for the Lord's table for the church, this central passage. He says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And twice in this record, Jesus tells his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And I'm always challenged by that, because even growing up in an evangelical church where this Lord's table was served every month, uh, hearing those words month after month, even though I was a little pagan who grew up into an adult pagan, uh, the fact that do this remembrance of me challenges me. What do I remember about my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? And that's the challenge to you. This is not a mindless ec- exercise because that's a ritual. Ritualism is mindlessness. But this is an observance where we together are declaring something, that we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And remember that these are are just memorial elements to help us remember Jesus took very simple elements, the cup of wine and bread, and distributed them, and he attached significant spiritual uh, meaning to them. And he tells us here that the bread and the cup are to be used as reminders. And so these don't convey any special grace to you, but they do participate together with the body of Christ. We declare that we remember something. About the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. So Jesus took the bread and He gave thanks, and then it was distributed. And He said, Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Wes Craig to give.